We are going to be in James chapter 5 today, and uh, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to James 5, and we have some Bibles to hand out. If anybody would like um, paperback of the Bridge Bible, it's actually called the Peer Bible, but it looks like a bridge, so we like to say it's the Bridge Bible. We're in James chapter 5, that's page 839. And if anybody wants just to migrate a little closer to the front, that would be great. I, you know, we have a few people gone. You, you may not know this, but the Sunday after Thanksgiving is one of the lowest Sundays. If you, if you want a Bible, just slip up your hand and we'll, there you go. Um, got some over here. Um, the Sunday after Thanksgiving is one of the lowest Sundays of the entire year in, in our attendance. And... Um, that's because we have a lot of college students that just went home for the weekend. Then we have this other phenomenon, be it's such a young church. We have a lot of 20-somethings who just take off for the weekend and go home and see their parents. And uh, so I'm really glad you're here today. This, you know, our Thanksgiving attendance is usually lower than summer. That's how low it is. Um, but we may have a few more here than our lowest last year. So good news for the American economy, Right. Good Friday, Good Friday, Black Friday, <laughs> um, outpaced 2010 by 7%. Isn't that exciting? How many here helped contribute to that 7% increase? Okay, a couple of you did. Very good. Thanks. Our economy needed it. Uh, last Friday, American shoppers dumped $11.4 billion back into our economy. Even with 60%, 70% off, we still had an increase. That's up $1 billion over uh, last year and proved to be the greatest day in sales ever. And, of course, it helped that stores opened at midnight on Thanksgiving so people could literally shop all night if they wanted to. The greatest sales event ever did, however, provoke a few problems, as you may have read already. For example, a robber shot a Black Friday shopper just outside of a Walmart, a Walmart store near San Francisco. At another Walmart store, now there's going to be a theme here, at another Walmart store near Muskegon, Michigan, a teenage girl was knocked down and stepped on several times when she was caught in a stampede at the electronics department. At a Walmart store in upstate New York, two women were injured and one man was arrested when a fight broke out. At a Walmart in Kissimmee, Florida, a man was arrested for his involvement in a scuffle at the jewelry counter. At a Walmart store in Kinston, North Carolina, off-duty police used pepper spray to hold shoppers at bay who began, began grabbing sales item before midnight, before the sale began. And my favorite is the woman at the Walmart store near Los Angeles who was trying to get an advantage over other shoppers purchasing Xbox video console, consoles. This uh, woman began spraying her competition with pepper spray and 20 people were injured. The Apostle James would not be surprised by Black Friday behavior. He understood the human nature, greed, and the power of money and stuff, and the danger of things becoming more important than 
people. We're going to look at James chapter 5, and uh, I'd like to read James chapter 5, the first uh, six verses. Now, James, as you know, writes like a fiery Old Testament prophet at times. Now, one of the uh, values of going through the Bible verse by verse and studying a book like this verse by verse, you have to you have to talk about the hard passages. And just listen to what uh, James writes here in James 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay to workers who mowed your fields, crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. In verses 1 through 6, the first thing, James wants us is to recognize the danger of wealth. Recognize the danger of wealth. And he points out in verse 1, wealth can bring misery at the judgment. And we just read the context here in verses 1 through 6 is about a facing a future judgment when Jesus Christ returns. He says, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. James is addressing, I don't know what these people look like or how they lived, but we learn a few things about them from this passage. James is addressing some first century wealthy Christians or professing Christians. He says, weep and wail. That's just right out of the fiery Old Testament prophet. Weep. That's uh, mourn about uh, your behavior, about your attitude. Uh, that's uh, consistent with a, a proper response of repentance, uh, turning from uh, what displeases God and turning back to God. A proper response of repentance for making money Uh, more important than people. And the misery that is coming, he refers to, is a coming judgment. And just to remind us, for all of us, you know, as we think about, well, this this group surely isn't us, right? Um, Are you the rich people? Uh, By application, are you rich? Um. One of the things I do want to remind us of here is in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is a judgment for Christians. This is not about people who are not Christian. That's a whole different scenario. This is Christians who will stand before Jesus one day. It's good because this group is all going to heaven. But all of us, in this line, or if it's going to be a line, all of this standing before Jesus have a responsibility. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And one of those things that we'll stand before Jesus for is how we handle our money. 
how we handle wealth. Next, wealth accumulated because of greed will be a witness against you, James says. Look at verse 2. Your wealth has rotted and moth, moths have eaten your clothes. Wealth in the first century was um, an accumulation. If you accumulated wealth, you accumulated gold and silver. Those were the most precious metals. And fine clothing, fine garments, fine textiles. They were just plain valuable. So keeping them hidden away in storage or in your safety deposit box was a, was a way of protecting your investments. And so clothing was like cash. If you had fine clothes, you could eventually use them for cash if you needed to. And um, so James is speaking of their wealth. And guess what? It didn't last. It's rotted. Moss have eaten. They've put stuff away, and they've sort of been hoarding it. And um, it's not lasting. Your gold and silver are corroded. The word for corroded is much broader than, uh, you know, if we want to be scientific here, it can mean tarnished here. It's a broad word. It can mean rust. It can be corrosion. It can be tarnished. And uh, James just wants to give a picture here that um, things that aren't taken care of uh, undergo some kind of uh, process that um, wears them down. The, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in these last days. And James is saying, when you stand before Jesus and you have all these things, so what? What is that about? How does that advance the kingdom? And it's not about the things when you stand before Jesus. And uh, they, they're going to work against you, he's saying. If it's just been about you, it's just been about your life and being self-indulgent. Um, Jesus understood this in Matthew 6. This is a passage we know pretty well here at the bridge. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's precisely what... James is making a reference to, is if life is just about the stuff, hey, it's not going to last. So don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. There are some things that have eternal value, and it's uh, one of those things is how you use your wealth, how you use your resources, how you use your finances. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Everything on earth that we have, if we just value it here, it's going to be temporary. It can, be, it can rot. It can be destroyed. It can rust. It can be stolen. You've got to have a security system. For where your treasure is, this is, what, this is what Jesus was teaching. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart follows your money. It's one of the most important things you'll learn. Your heart follows your money. Next, um, wealth accumulated by greed can lead to unrighteous acts. And um, 
James writes in verse 4, look, the wages you failed to pay uh, the workmen who mowed your fields and are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And so this first century group, wealthy group, we don't know a lot about them. It's hard to believe that this group would be Christians the way James describes them. You know what? It doesn't really make any difference because the information is still true. This group uh, paid uh, unfair wages and had dishonest negotiations. They were just about uh, accumulating more for themselves. They did not pay, pay their workers fair wages. They sought to underpay and not to pay what they had promised. They were devious and dishonest in their business dealings. And it was about greed. One of the uh, great definitions of greed that I've heard is greed is wanting more and more of what we have enough of already. It's wanting more and more of what we have enough of already. And greed can influence people to be honest, dishonest with their taxes, dishonest with reporting their income, dishonest in reporting expenses. It can just plain affect how we view our resources. So um, wealth accumulated by greed can lead to unrighteous acts like not being fair to people that work for you, like number two, being self-focused and self-indulgent in your lifestyle. Verse five, he says, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves. That's quite a word picture for the day of slaughter. The good life, a life of comfort and convenience, a life of consumption, it fattened yourselves. And uh, James is saying wealth accumulated by greed can lead to really poor choices, to unrighteous acts, behavior. And then in verse 6, their greed led to uh, condemning and murdering innocent people. You have condemned and murdered innocent men, uh, who were not opposing you. Now, I don't know who James is referring to. We, we don't know what group or how, what happened. Is this figurative? Is it metaphorical? Is it literal? The way James writes, I have to take it as a literal uh, group of people. I don't know. Uh, somehow there's this group of wealthy people are responsible for other people's deaths. That's what James is bringing out. And Jesus had this to say uh, about wealth. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. James knew these words of Jesus. You cannot serve God and money. Yet in America, we, we American Christians try hard sometimes to do both, just to see if we can prove Jesus wrong. Just in case he's wrong, we like to try to do both. Sometimes that's how we live. Yes, we're for Jesus, and yes, we like being Americans. Jesus said, you can't do both. You can only have one master. Wealth must not be the master. Wealth in and of itself is not the enemy. Wealth is to be used for the benefit of Jesus Christ. Wealth is not the goal. Obedience to Jesus is the goal. And, and uh, we can only have one master. 
The Apostle Paul gives us insight into this subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He said, 1 Timothy 6, do we have that? People who want to get rich, maybe that's not you. There's certainly a lot of people who do desire to get rich, fall into temptation. James understood the danger of pursuing wealth. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and to trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You know, that's been misquoted many times where people have said, some people have said, money is the root of all kinds of evil. Nope. Money is neutral. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money. Watch out for get-rich-quick schemes. It's been said that Christians are one of the most foolish groups of people who pursue get-rich-quick schemes. Um, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many uh, griefs. James would agree wholeheartedly with Paul. Pursuit of wealth is dangerous. It comes with temptations and traps that short-circuit the spiritual life. The Apostle Paul uh, further gives us appropriate instructions. If we jump down to verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world. Instructions for the wealthy. Instructions for the rich. Are you one of those people? Are you one of the rich by application in this present world? He says, instruct them not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. It's not against wealth. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And that would be the start of Thanksgiving. God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. God has provided for you richly for your enjoyment. And the appropriate response is, thank you, God. It's called worship. And we, we just, a lot of us just got paid to have a day to tell God that. Thanksgiving. Uh, next, command them, command the rich to be good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Command them to do good and rich in good deeds. It's one of the reasons why in our growth groups, um, each semester we, we take a time for outreach where we focus on serving outside of ourselves and outside of the bridge and serving where there are needs in our community because we want to uh, be rich in good deeds. We want to continue to have that a part of our DNA as a church. Be generous. You know, that's God's antidote for materialism. We have resources. God is a generous God, and he wants us to be like him. And he wants us to be generous too. And, you know, generosity um, is the heart of God and is, the, is a heart for God. And then he says in verse 19, in this way they will lay up for themselves, just like Jesus said in Matthew 6, in this way they will lay up treasure when you're generous, when you give back to God, 
you're investing in something that's eternal. You're investing in the kingdom of God. In the same way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. I want to show you a video clip right now. Live 58 is a great um, instructional opportunity for our church and all of our growth groups are going to see an extended uh, an hour and 15 minute uh, video clip and this isn't even a part of it but it's the same group Um, and I'm very much encouraged hopeful about the potential we have to um, if we're generous people to um, really have an impact on world poverty which if you read the scriptures is very much a part of God's heart. Um, one of the questions I asked you earlier is, are you rich? Where the Apostle Paul said, instruct the rich. Well, if uh, your family income is at least $20,000 a year, you are in the top 11% of the world population regarding income. If your family income is $40,000 or more, you are in the top 3% of the world population regarding income. If your income, family income is $60,000 or more, you are in the top 1% of the world. Do you think you're rich? Our problem is we just compare ourselves with ourselves and we think the rich people are people who have more than us. Um, So James urges us to recognize the dangers of wealth, verses 1 through 6. We're going to jump to verses 7 through 12, where James instructs us to be patient in hard times. Be patient in hard times. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. James instructs us to be patient like a farmer. Uh, good illustration. James is great at, with illustrations. This is not. Uh, this is a command, not a suggestion. Be patient, then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And then this illustration of the farmer who waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Um, farming, some of you know, requires patience and hard work and diligence. You have to prepare the soil, prepare the field, plant your crop, um, cultivate it, wait for the rains. In Israel, um, the rains come in two times of the year primarily. The planting takes place, prepare in the fall, and the planting takes place in the fall. And then the farmers wait for the autumn rains. Very crucial. And then winter comes, and it's kind of a dry spell. And they wait for the spring. And they need the spring rains. And then comes the harvest, early summer. You know, we we often think of harvest uh, primarily as being in the fall, but they would harvest in early summer. Uh, A lot of lessons are learned about farming. It's about waiting. It it takes faith to do that. You know, sometimes farmers find it easy to believe in God. Some, not necessarily, 
But this whole idea is that you have to rely on what's going to happen. You have to trust the future that this crop is going to come forth. And James is saying, you and I need to be patient like that. Need to be patient until the Lord's coming, until Jesus Christ uh, returns. And parents, I'd just like to take an aside here. This is one of the most important things you're going to teach your kids. It's about living by faith. It's about uh, teaching people to follow God, even though everything doesn't seem to be just exactly the way we want them. Teaching them to pray and wait, because the answer will come. Living by faith, having patience like the farmer. Teach that to your kids. It's much like church planting. You know, church plant. The idea of putting something down so that it grows roots. And it takes time for the thing to grow. It needs to be cultivated and watered and cared for. And then it can bear fruit. This whole concept of being patient like a farmer. Verse 9, don't grumble against each other. This is kind of a consistent theme for James. Uh, For James, it's very important that if you're going to be mature spiritually, that you have to bridle your tongue. You have to control your speech. This has come up in every chapter uh, in the book of James. He says, don't grumble, verse 9, against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. It's almost time for judgment. And uh, don't judge others because you, you, there's already somebody else who has that job description. And he's way more proficient at it than you. So you don't need to do that. You don't have to worry about others. You don't have to grumble against each other. You don't have to judge each other. Don't use your critical thinking skills to be critical of people. The Apostle Paul uh, caught this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. He said, do everything without complaining or arguing. We used to put this on a refrigerator in our kitchen. It was for the whole family, but it was one of the most important things we were trying to teach our kids because that was the most common kind of conversation that w- we seemed to have in the kitchen was uh, grumbling and complaining. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as, as you hold out the word of life. And this is a very important concept for the church. Paul is saying, if you can get through life without grumbling and complaining, you're going to stand out for Jesus. You're going to shine brightly for him. Now, if you do grumble and complain, you're just going to be more like the American consumer. But we have a chance uh, to stand out. Don't grumble and complain. Verse 10, James teaches, Be patient like the Old Testament prophets. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And so James just reminds them, they know who he's talking about. They know the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, For example, Isaiah, 66 chapters. Uh, Isaiah served as a prophet in the 8th century B.C. 
He served over 60 years under kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He foretold the coming of Jesus Christ, the first coming and the second coming. He foretold the future judgment and the millennial kingdom, yet he did not see any of this come to pass in over his 60 years. Be patient like Isaiah. Be patient like Jeremiah, served as prophet in the 7th century uh, before Christ under Josiah, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. He prophesied about the 70-year Babylonian captivity where Babylon would come in, carry off the nation Israel into captivity, take him to the city of Babylon. Jeremiah was thrown into prison. He served God faithfully. But he didn't, and he also prophesied about the new covenant. You ever heard of that? We like to think of it as the New Testament. And... uh, he, he served God faithfully, but he didn't see any of these uh, come to pass. Daniel prophesied. He was a Jewish prophet, but he didn't even get to be in Jerusalem. He prophesied from Babylon, uh, from a foreign city during the Babylonian captivity. He was thrown into the lion's den, thrown into a fiery furnace. Um, he, he foretold of several earthly kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2 and 7. He foretold of Daniel's 70th week, time of great suffering on earth. And he foretold of the Messiah, Jesus, who would to come, and he didn't see any of it. Be patient like the Old Testament prophets. Verse 11, persevere like Job. Look at verse 11. James writes, as you know, consider... Uh, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Just read through the book of Job this afternoon and you will see exactly what he's talking about. Job suffered greatly. He lost his kids. He lost his wealth. He got ridiculed by his wife and his friends for following God, yet he hung on to what he believed about God and God's faithfulness. And Job was blessed for his unswerving faith. Last verse, verse 12, don't swear by heaven or earth, and you're going to want to pay attention to this. James, again, is concerned about our speech because sometimes we say things that aren't helpful. Look at verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. So he's saying, watch your speech. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you say about heaven. Be careful what you say about earth. Don't swear by heaven. In heaven's name. In the, in, in the first century, to talk about heaven was to talk about God. It's a place of God, and it's sort of like we don't want to mention God's name, so we'll call it heaven. And James says, don't swear by heaven for heaven's sakes. Don't do it. Don't swear by something of the earth. Um, don't swear by hell. I remember we used to have a saying, or not we used to have a saying, I just remember hearing growing up, somebody who didn't want to say hell because that was swearing, they would say, what in the Sam Hill? Sam, who is Sam Hill? 
But it, you know, it was a way of making this, you know, grabbing attention to this statement. James says, "Don't do it." Um, another one I grew up hearing was, "Well, Judas Priest." What's that about? Well, you know, those are the people who paid Judas thirty pieces of silver, as if that's going to mean anything or uh, be effective in communicating. But James just says, don't do it. And, you know, we're not looking for a a list of things that you shouldn't or shouldn't say. Please understand the spirit of what Scripture is saying. Don't say stupid and meaningless things. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Make it simple. Keep it simple, students. Uh, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, Exodus 20, verse 7, it's our last verse. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is one of the Ten Commandments that I grew up with. There are two lists of Ten Commandments. I'm not sure this is on both lists. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It means don't speak God's name in a meaningless way. Don't use it in an empty way, just to fill space, just to fill the air. Don't say God's name in that way. You know, it's easy to say, oh God, what is that? It's easy to to say, uh, here's one that bugs me, Christians do. I'm not making rules here. I want you to understand what the scripture is saying, the spirit of scripture. Okay, one of the things that I hear Christians do sometimes is say, praise the Lord. Isn't that a good thing? Because it's worship when you give praise to the Lord. Sometimes Christians just sort of end sentences that way, like it's a spiritual thing. And they just they say it without thinking. And they're, they're praising the Lord about everything, and they're not thinking. It's, it can be kind of meaningless. Now, I'm not their judge. God says, just let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Don't be flippant with God about God, and you don't have to swear an oath about anything. Now, God is okay with serious oaths that are commitments. Like when you get married, you get married in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is a good thing. God is for that. But God doesn't want us to be flippant in using his name. So, Recognize the danger of wealth. Thank God for your wealth. It's one of the most important things. That'll keep you remembering, where does my wealth come from? Thank God for your wealth. Um, Place your wealth under the authority of Jesus Christ because he's the only master. And be generous. Um, I was watching the film and, you know, a lot of you are generous. That's awesome. A lot of you are doing things for the poor, and for poverty. That's fantastic. Um, Live 58 is promoted by people in World Vision and Compassion International. Those are both very good organizations. We support both of those organizations. There are some great things, and um, I just want to encourage you to keep it up and to to be generous. Secondly, be patient as you wait upon God to bring whatever change you're waiting for. Be patient. Not critical, patient. Okay, let's stand. I'd like to pray.
Father, we thank you uh, for James. And uh, Lord, he sometimes speaks some harsh words for us, and they're hard to uh, swallow. And we we sometimes just want to deflect what he says. And yet uh, there are things that we need to hear, we, we need to think about, and we need to apply to ourselves. Some of those things don't always apply, but many things do. And God, we know uh, you have made most of us wealthy, and um, you want us to be generous, and you want us to put people above things. And God, I'm, um, I'm excited about the challenge to be involved in putting an end to world poverty, and I just ask that you would show us what we can do for Jesus' sake. Amen.